0: Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the Box Office Mojo Top 100. Uh, once again, yeah. What's this? What's this? It's super color, fragilistic, What is this? A whole new world. What is this? By the end of this episode, uh, we will be halfway through this list on the top, on this top 100 list, and uh, I, so I've been using the a list on on Letterboxd to uh, to to I don't know just read from I guess and. While, I mean, as as far as I can tell, it's been completely accurate up until this point, it does lack a lot of the information that kind of warrants being included when talking about the films on this list. So, you know, in the details, that you know, it doesn't list the actual box office take for these films and anything like that. So, I'm now, you know, the fifth episode of this, I'm now going to be using... The box office mojo top one hundred actual list, which also shows me uh, the the films that are you know still in theaters or recent and and potentially moving. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so <clears throat> we're going to start at number sixty, go up to fifty one, and uh, that'll be today's episode. Great. Okay. So, <clears throat> number 60 uh, is the first film on the list that eclipses $800 million worldwide. And this film earned $813.2 million worldwide, $234 million domestic. It came out last year and is directed by David Yates. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a pseudo-sequel spin-off film to a very, very popular franchise that has already appeared on this list and will appear uh, many more times later on, and that is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Um, starring Eddie Redmayne, Colin Farrell, Catherine Waterston, Dan Fogler, Alison Sudol, John Voight, Ron Perlman, Zoe Kravitz, Ezra Miller, Samantha Morton, and others... This film is uh, adapted from the short, short, small book that was based on a, a text referenced in the Harry Potter series. So, very, very strange sequence of canon events there. And uh, yeah, it came out last year. It did really well and it got generally positive reviews. Not quite as positive, I don't think, as the the vast majority of the original series, but still positive, and it earned a ton of money. So, we're expecting sequels in the near future. I'm fine with it. Uh, you know, I, I liked it. I gave it a three and a half. I gave it a the Fantastic Beasts 74. Um, so, you know, I, I liked it. I think it's good. But it lacked a lot of the, <laughs> quote, magic that the original tr- series had. And I don't, hmm, I, I don't know exactly, you know, where things fell apart for me. Uh, you know, it, it's it was interesting seeing a completely new setting. You know, I, I had a review episode for this, I believe, already. Uh, but you know, I, I like the movie. I think it's a good movie. And I think the less weight you put on it in respect to the original series, uh, the the better off you're going to end up feeling. So, yeah. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I'm betting that the sequels end up on this list at some point. Probably. Yeah. So, moving on. Number 59 Earning $817.4 million worldwide, $306.2 million domestic, and coming out in 1996. Uh, And uh, there's an indication here that this is a film that made its total uh, money uh, over multiple releases. So it originally came out in 1996, was released... I don't know when it was released later on, but it was released later on. Uh, Directed by Roland Emmerich and starring Will Smith, Bill Pullman, Jeff Goldblum, Mary McDonnell, Judd Hirsch, Robert Logia, Randy Quaid, Vivek A. Fox, James Rebhorn, Harvey Fierstein, Adam Baldwin, among others. Um, It's Independence Day. And Independence Day is... A very popular film. We just had Independence Day Resurgence come out last year. uh, Poorly. And I'm not a big fan. Uh, You know, I I didn't see this movie until last year for the first time. Uh, So I I kind of missed that boat. I'm not sure uh, exactly you know, why this was so popular when it came out. I guess it was just a huge event at the time. And, and uh, you know, now we have films that big every month, let alone once or twice a year. So it was a bit different sort of situation. This film was very patriotic, very pro the United States. Uh, and that's fine. I don't have any stock in that myself that I could care less so yeah I don't know it just it doesn't fit with me I, I it's not my kind of movie I gave it two and a half stars at 57 so I think it's okay uh, it certainly is entertaining for what it is but it's it's not a movie that I'm excited by or or overly interested in or or that I think bears learning from or rewatching or anything like that just uh just another world apocalypse movie by roland emmerich it's his thing so it's 59 independence day number 58 uh it may is a film that made 821.7 million dollars worldwide uh 403.7 million of that domestically so almost half of it made here Uh, This film came out in 2002, is directed by Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire, Willem Dafoe, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Cliff Robertson, J.K. Simmons, Joe Manganiello, Bruce Campbell, among others. And that's the original Spider-Man. Yeah, so, you know, we've talked about some Spider-Man films already. And uh, we will be talking about more to come. Spider-Man 2 was ranked 66th, uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 73rd, The Amazing Spider-Man 2 89th, so all of these Spider-Man movies uh, are on here. We've talked about, this is the fourth Spider-Man movie, uh, the only one not on here is Spider-Man 3, and it might come up uh, going forward. But, uh, like I mentioned before, Spider-Man 2 is my favorite of the Spider-Man movies. And uh, this one is... But this one is very, very good. You know, I think um, the introduction to this character, the introduction to the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man is interesting. I personally prefer that this... I I You know, this was my first introduction to Spider-Man. I didn't know who Spider-Man was before this movie. I don't think... Sure, I'm sure I knew, but like I didn't like I never read the comics, I never saw him on TV or anything like that. And so, for me, the only Spider Man I knew for the longest time was the Spider Man who literally made webs himself you know, he didn't have web shooters on his arms. That was strange to me when I saw that for the first time. And I've always liked that, I, I always thought that that was interesting, I thought it was cool. Uh, this is also the film that introduced us to um, J.K. Simmons uh, as uh, the, the what's his name? Um, it's going to tell me. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson, who I think is a great character. One of the best characters uh, in supporting role. Willem Dafoe is a terrifying actor. Uh, the Green Goblin is a solid villain, but he, he's not Doc Ock. Kirsten Dunst isn't Fully into her role yet same with James Franco they're very young and they don't really own their roles until the sequel but Sam Raimi does a great job here uh, sort of you know just creating a high school superhero movie and that's all you really want from a Spider-Man movie and so it was a big success it made a ton of money and uh, that's number 58 Spider-Man Number fifty-seven made eight hundred twenty-five point five million dollars. Two hundred ninety-two point six of that domestically came out in twenty ten, and is an original property that has not spawned a sequel, uh, which is a very rare thing to find. Um, you know, other than E.T. the Extraterrestrial at number sixty-three, the last in unique property. You know, it was 2012 at number 70. Uh, there's very few. There's very, very few. But this film uh, is directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ellen Page, Tom Hardy, Ken Watanabe, Killian Murphy, Marianne Cotillard, Michael Caine, Tom Berenger, Pete Postlethwaite, and others. And that is Inception. Uh, Inception was and uh, probably still is uh, a huge presence and and overarching. Uh, uh, I want to say presence again, uh, in in the film landscape. It inspired so many memes at the time it came out. Uh, an incredible number of fanfics were written about it. And it earned uh, Nolan his first Best Picture nomination, I believe, um, after the disappointment of The Dark Knight missing out on that nomination. And so this was just like a high-concept heist movie that had a ton of exposition, stunning special effects, and, uh, and just great banter between its lead characters and an incredibly polarizing final scene. And that's kind of all you needed to do, you know, everything sort of, you know, this movie, like, paved the way for a lot of interesting concepts, a lot of special effects work, you know, if you look at a film like Doctor Strange, it takes a lot of its aesthetics and its uh, presentation from the special effects used in Inception, uh and you know like nolan did it 6 years earlier and it still looks fantastic uh, uh you know and just just the very idea of of jumping into somebody else's mind to commit a heist is is fascinating you know like you're not stealing physical tangible things you're stealing information you're stealing memories you're stealing you know the the codes to some other something or other and and then you know the sort of conceit in this movie is that you know the ultimate challenge is jumping into someone's mind while into someone's mind while into someone's mind you know and and how deeper how much deeper can you go into someone's subconscious before that you get kicked out before you are lost forever and you know these are questions that the film tries to answer uh depending on your feelings of the movie it answers them well or or not well enough and ultimately uh you know ultimately i love this movie i think it's fascinating i think it's a great mental puzzling movie uh you know i gave it a four and a half stars or a 91 it is one of my favorite Nolan films. Uh, although most of Nolan's films are one of my favorite Nolan films, and you know he just has a fantastic cast here that are all working on top of their games, and you know it's just it's it's all these actors that he uses constantly. You've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is also in Dark Knight Rises. You've got uh, Tom Hardy, who played Bane in Dark Knight Rises. You have Ken Watanabe, who was in Batman Begins. Uh, Killian Murphy, who was in Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises, who's going to be in Dunkirk. Uh, Marion Cotillard was in Dark Knight Rises. Uh, Michael Caine is in the Batman series. All of these people, you know, he uses the same guy people a lot, and he gets a lot out of them. You know, they're not the same characters. They're playing different roles. And then you've got Leonardo DiCaprio leading the way, brilliantly as Cobb and it's just a really fun movie uh it's just it's just a really fun movie and I'm, I'm it's made up you know for an original property like that to make so much money is is just it, it's not very common and uh, so that's 57 Inception and now we get a trio of uh, uh films based on previous IPs, and and sequels, and whatnot, and the first of those, number 56, made $829.7 million, 292.3 of that was made domestically, this is a movie that came out in 2012, and is the last film in this series of movies that we have touched on four of already, directed by Bill Condon, director of Beauty and the Beast, starring Kristen Stewart, Robert Pattinson, Taylor Lautner, and others, is the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part Two? I alluded to this earlier, but I do think this is far and away the best of the Twilight films, and uh, for for really big one for really one simple reason, and that is the brawl scene that plays out towards the end of the film, and, and at the middle slash end of the film. That is uh, later reversed and actually doesn't take place, and is mostly just a, a, a way for one of the characters to say, This is what happens if you don't comply, sort of a thing. And as sort of mm, low stakes as that sort of a conceit may be, I still really enjoy that. You know, we get more action in this movie than in the rest of the series combined despite the fact that none of it really happens, it's still meaningful. So it's still used in an interesting way. Um, also, you know, Condon also is able to, uh, you know, he wrote, I believe he directed, I think the only he only directed Breaking Dawn's, The Breaking Dawn, parts one and two films of this series. And he is able to truly, like, Make these movie, these Breaking Dawn movies, like interesting. He adds elements of style and and uh, editing that the first couple of movies just don't have. They just don't make sense in the same way. They don't have a real amount of weight to them. And and there's so and you know they're stylized, but they're not as stylized as they should be. Uh, you know we're looking at this world of of glimmering vampires, and, like, that's really strange when not everything is as stylized as the vampires are, and so Condon, like, I wouldn't say solves that that problem, but uh, handles it well enough to make it tolerable. And so Breaking Dawn Part 2 gets two and a half stars from me, or... Uh, a 51. So, again, not a great movie, but the only movie of the series, in my opinion, that isn't a bad movie inherently. Unfortunately, you have to slog through four bad to awful movies to get to it. So, uh, you know, the reward is not really worth the investment for the most part. So, we are finally done with Twilight. Uh, so at 56, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 2, the last of its kind. Moving on to a film we already talked about, I believe the original. Um, yeah, the original f- of these films was is currently ranked 88th. Uh, and the rest of them are all ahead on this list. Uh, and this is the, I believe, first sequel. And that is... Number 55, making $836.3 million, 402.1 of that domestically, released in 2009, directed by Michael Bay, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. Uh, This one continues to star Shia LaBeouf, Megan, and Megan Fox, uh, among others. It still has a huge cast. It's still just Robots that can transform into cars and other vehicles fighting each other in a very haphazard and and difficult to decipher way. Even the poster on Letterboxd, theoretically, I think, has four Transformers slash Decepticons in it. And it's like already even just them sitting there, standing there staring at me. It's difficult to make out the the distinction between them. Uh, Yeah, so much like the actor Shia LaBeouf, his character Sam Witwicky is trying to leave the Autobots behind and live a normal life, and they drag him back into a war. Uh, This is a... I mean, this is just starting the downward spiral of Transformers movies. They'd get progressively worse as they go along. Uh, the first one, as I mentioned before, I thought was okay. And Revenge of the Fallen is bad. Uh, I gave it two stars or 46. So, I mean, again, it's spectacle for spectacle's sake. And if you like that, you'll enjoy the movie. Um, but in so far as uh, getting anything out of it, you won't. And that's, uh, that's kind of how, what I'm going to say about all of them going forward to a, some extent. So that's number 55, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. Number 54 is part of another series. This is uh, based on an IP created by George Lucas. And this film is directed by George Lucas. It came out in 2005. Made $848.8 million, 380.3 of that domestically. It was re-released to gain, so it it gained some of its uh, box office take from that. And this is Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Uh, Starring Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, Hayden Christensen, uh, Ian McDiarmid, Samuel Jackson, Christopher Lee, Anthony Daniels, Kenny Baker, Frank Oz, Jimmy Smits, among others. The final film in the prequel trilogy, uh, where we finally see Darth Vader's uh, rise to who he is as we know him currently. And, excuse me, this is the film that many agree to be the best film of the prequel trilogy, with, uh, you know, arguably not a bad overall package. Uh, You know, there's far less uh, politics going on in this movie. It's a lot more action, a lot more momentum. But you still have Uh, you know, Hayden Christensen being a whiny little bitch, which I personally don't find that a problem. Like, it's shitty, and he's a shitty character, but he's not... I mean, he's not a shitty character. He's just a character I don't like. That doesn't make the character shitty in the same way. Like, it's not written badly. It's not like he's acting badly. Like, Hayden Christensen is an okay actor. Uh, You know, I've seen him in other things. He isn't a terrible actor, but, uh, you know, just the fact that he is a whiny little bitch makes everyone hate his performance, hate his acting, etc., when, you know, Luke Skywalker is arguably just as whiny and just as much of a bitch at times, and I think the difference here being that Luke is able to mature and grow out of that quite quickly, whereas, uh, Anakin does not, you know, through three films, he is the same whiny character, and <clears throat> it isn't really until A New Hope, where, and, you know, we didn't know this at the time, but, you know, we see Darth Vader in A New Hope, and, you know, he isn't the whiny character we knew to come, and it isn't really till the end of Revenge of the Sith that that transition takes place, so I like Revenge of the Sith, Um, I gave it uh, three and a half stars, a 73, Um, so not great, you know, it doesn't, it pales in comparison to uh, the original trilogy, in my opinion, but especially when compared to um, the prequel trilogy, it is far superior than the original, far superior than the Phantom Menace, which is bad, uh, I think that... Attack of the Clones is good. It's not as good. I think it's just a little good. And I think... So, like, I think the original, the prequel trilogy... Gets progressively better. Starts out bad, becomes... Uh, good, and then becomes pretty good... Really good, with Revenge of the Sith. And I think that the original trilogy... Is just amazing. Just flat amazing. Uh, and so... Revenge of the Sith did a ton of money, which is crazy. Uh, you know, you'd think about all these movies. And, uh, you know, Star Wars. So so we've already talked about uh, Star Wars episode four, the, the original film. And you know, Star Wars Episode 2 does not show up on this list. Whereas episode one, does show up higher on this list. Uh, So that's very interesting to to kind of see just how the public reacted to these movies. So everyone was super excited for the first one because all the Star Wars movies up until that point had been good. And they were so let down by the first one that they didn't go and see the second one at nearly the same amount of quantity. And yet somehow the third film did better. You know, like it got a lot more, it got a lot better reviews, and you know, again, I think it is a better movie, but it's just interesting how fickle the 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 fans of these series can be, and uh, so yeah, so that's number fifty-four, Star Wars Episode Three, Revenge of the Sith. Number fifty. Three uh, is another original property, and that is the 2015 film, which made 857.6 million dollars, 356.5 of that domestically. I believe it still holds the record for the largest opening weekend uh, that came in second. At like 90 million, 80 or 90 million dollars, or something like that, when it opened up against Jurassic World, which is insane, uh, to say the least. It is my second favorite film that came out in 2015 behind only Mad Max Fury Road, directed by Pete Doctor from Pixar Animation Studios. It is Inside Out starring the voice talents of Amy Poehler, Phyllis Smith, Richard Kind, Bill Hader, Louis Black, Mindy Kaling, Diane Lane, Kyle MacLachlan, and others. Inside Out is a brilliant film about the emotions that live in your head and how they are translated into um, the actions and memories and, and feelings that you have. You know, they... they we follow a little girl named Riley who has just moved across the country and is going to a new school, and so there's a lot of emotions that are inside of her head, struggling for dominance, and uh, we get to see kind of how those things don't always work out the way you want them to. You know, doesn't matter how much you try to be happy, sometimes circumstances dictate that you won't be. And that's really fucking depressing. This movie is really depressing. I'm pretty sure I cried almost the entire way through it. I was just... it's just really sad, and it connected with me on such an emotional level. Uh, You have Amy Poehler voicing Joy, who wants to do nothing but bring happiness to Riley, and that is her mission. She pushes away everybody else all the other emotions in their head and just wants Riley to be happy and happiness is great and it's, it's a wonderful thing to be genuinely happy but as we progress through the film and, and problems arise and roadblocks appear and mistakes are made you know, you learn via watching as the characters are learning that even like just being happy isn't enough. You don't learn enough life lessons just being happy. You don't undergo enough changes. You don't mature in the same way if you're just happy. And you need sadness and anxiety and rage and uh, anger, rage slash anger and and disgust to to fully develop as a human person. And this film displays that in such an incredibly heartfelt and easy to understand way. It is a beautiful film. It looks amazing. I'm I I, I don't know. I I I think about this movie and I I I I I I I I I I Powerful and emotional to me. I I can't not care about it that way. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting how the film is able to separate Riley's personality and Riley, the character, from these five emotions that live in her head. Who are also individual characters in this movie. And yet, you know, those emotions aren't the same as Riley. You know, she can make her own decisions. They're just kind of reacting and encouraging the, her in different directions, in a sense. And I, I think that those are. I don't, I don't know. I think it's just a great movie, and I, if you haven't seen it, I really think you should because it is so, so powerful and so, so sad. <laughs> and then it's good to be sad sometimes. So that's number 53, Inside Out. Number 52 is a a film that came out in 2013 and made $865 million. Uh, We have already talked about two of these films previously. And uh, it made $424.7 million domestically. And that is the sequel to The Hunger Games, directed by Francis Lawrence, The Hunger Games: Catching Fire. My in my opinion the best of the Hunger Games films and the most exciting uh, it's basically the first film with more political drama and intrigue and that is inter- and that is great. And equally as interesting is the fact that this is the uh, 75th. So this is the, takes place during the 75th Hunger Games, which they label the Quarter Quell. Uh, just in a sense, just in a way to uh, bring back previous winners. Uh, so once again, Katniss enters the games, except now she's going up against, uh, in some cases, super old people, and in some cases, uh, just incredibly talented people who have won the games before and that i think is awesome i think that's really cool plus you have the entire added element of president snow and his entire thing and 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 you see as as katniss and pita uh sort of do a victor's tour and they they visit all the other places in this in they really begin to understand how significant their presence is and what their win meant to everybody and the fact that they thwarted the capital and they defied them and they both won not just one person like has always happened uh you know you finally have these sparks of revolution and i think that that's powerful it's a shame that the film's kind of peter out peter out uh, uh in the in mocking jay but the the uh the foundations are very solid from the hunger games and the hunger games catching fire and so yeah so i gave catching fire i believe an 80 85 uh four stars. Really enjoyed it. I had a great time watching it, and I think that it's incredibly fun and incredibly good. So that's number 52, The Hunger Games, Catching Fire. And our last film of the episode, uh, number 51, is the first of this series, I believe, that we've seen. Yeah, Um, the first of six films that we're going to see uh, from this world, um, released in 2001 and re-released later on, uh, earning $871.5 million, 315.5 of those domestically, directed by Peter Jackson from 2001, as I said, uh, starring Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Vigo Mortensen, Liv Tyler, Orlando Bloom, John Rustavies, Sean Bean, Christopher Lee, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Sean Astin, Andy Serkis, Hugo Weaving, Kate Blanchett, Ian Holm, Craig Parker, Lawrence McCord, and more, is The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. The first film that introduced us to this world in it, all of its brilliant, three-hour-long glory, uh, you know, just opening up a fantasy realm unlike ever before and really set us on a journey through to the return of the king which ended up sweeping the oscars and later on the hobbit movies which are met with a far more divided uh response the fellowship of the ring i think for me personally, is the weakest of the three Lord of the Rings movies, and I, I that that isn't to take anything away from this movie. I think it's a great movie. I give it an eighty-eight, so I still I think it's fantastic. I think it's great. I've seen it six times. Um, I think I'm pretty sure in every uh, variable of iteration, so theatrical run, uh, extended, super extended, uh, directors, whatever. And the only reason it's the weakest one for me is that, you know, I think that just the subsequent films just take the groundwork that Fellowship lays and build upon it. And so it just, it's adding more and becoming more because of it. And, you know, I think there's a little bit more, you know, I really enjoy the adventure aspects of, Two Towers and Return of the King, and I love the journey, and I love the, the, uh, just the the way ha- that those two movies are able to sort of trans the 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 what is the word I'm looking for here um, to 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 overcome the fact that they have a hundred characters in these movies, the fact that they have to keep track of all these different storylines. And the Fellowship... I mean, the Fellowship does all these things too. And like, Don't get me wrong. But there's a large chunk of the Fellowship that doesn't do those things. So you have a pre- pretty significant chunk of time between the opening scene and when you know we're meeting the council and determining the fate of the ring and who's going to be part of it and who's going to take care of it and who's going to protect it and all these different things. And... I, I, th- I still think those are intriguing scenes and, and very compelling, and you need those scenes to set up the movie. But I'm just inherently less impressed. I guess is the best way to say it. Less impressed by that sequence of this film than I am by the vast majority of the uh, the rest of this trilogy. You know, I, I. You know, this is the sort of quintessential hero's journey. And a film, a series of films that everyone is familiar with, whether or not you've seen them, but you probably have. And there's a reason for that. It's because they're really fucking good, and they tell a fascinating journey about just an unsuspe- uns- unsuspecting, unassuming kid of almost, uh, played by Elijah Wood, who is entrusted with great power, and. That you know, good and bad things are sure to come from something a situation like that, and they do. And set a across, set set against um, New Zealand as it's as the incredible background uh, of that 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 country is. You have just one of the greatest looking films with. in my my opinion, the greatest sense of pace ever. Uh, So one of the things that I, I, I think I've brought this up before, but a thing that I really just hate about a lot of modern films now is how little respect they pay to individual scenes. And what I mean by that is they don't let scenes play out in their entirety. They cut scenes short. They want to move faster. They don't have time to sit around and finish a scene uh, sort of in the vein of, you know, movies generally don't have you say goodbye when you're on the phone with someone because that takes up time that you don't need to see. You don't see characters going to the bathroom unless something very significant happens in the bathroom. And this film really, takes its time to let its characters breathe to let its characters uh speak about what is happening and explain the situations that they're in and analyze things and talk and just be themselves and i think that is so important and i think you know while the hobbit films didn't quite accomplish this as well uh you know peter jackson has a knack for you know making a lived in world whether or not it's it's whether it's the lord of the rings whether it's king kong whether it's the hobbit you know he you know he still is able to present a place that is very difficult to imagine any other way anymore you know you can't think of the Lord of the Rings without seeing Elijah Wood without seeing Ian McKellen without Viggo Mortensen and that's a great testament to Peter Jackson as a director and the entire team that he had with him that worked on all of these different things and so Lord of the Rings the Fellowship of the Ring number 51 and the last film for today's episode uh Thank you so much for listening. And if you are interested in other f- episodes of the podcast, it's, uh, you know you can find those on iTunes or you can head over to circleoffilm.com uh, where there's other episodes plus the Circle of Film Awards, the Scavenger Hunt Superlatives, information about the spreadsheet, about me. And if you have any comments or concerns, questions or answers... You can direct those to circleoffilm at gmail.com. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same good night. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fails.